John 5, beginning in verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you might be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Oscar Wilde gets credit for popularizing the phrase, but it was author Marie Loudon's in 1927, who was probably the first to write the sad but sometimes true maxim, no good deed goes unpunished. Her exact words were, kindness brings its own punishment, and either form can be applied to Jesus here. What did he do? He healed a man, a man who had been an invalid for 38 years, a man who had lingered at this pool for a long time, desperately hoping to be healed. This man was immediately able to pick up his bed mat And walk away. Jesus healed. We know what happens on the last pages of John's gospel. It's no surprise to us that he will be hated by the religious rulers. And eventually even put to death. Even so, it's easy sometimes to forget how early in his ministry the opposition begins. And how good were the deeds they so strongly opposed. Jesus healed a man, and the opposition comes hard and fast. What's unfolded from this conflict is a kind of mock trial. The religious rulers were mad enough that he had healed on the Sabbath. They are incensed that he would claim as defense equality with God. They asked him to defend what he did, and his method was to defend who he was. This morning's text is about the stream of witnesses essential to Jesus' defense of his identity. 
He sets this up in verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. The magnitude of Jesus' claim of identity is so significant that anyone who makes it, even Jesus, must be prepared to offer witnesses. That's not because Jesus would or could say anything false about himself. It's only the significance of the claim. His defense for working on the Sabbath was that he and the Father are doing the same work, that they are one. And anyone who claims to be God, I think we can all agree, ought to be able to back it up. Jesus will not be the only man to ever claim to be the Messiah. More on that later. And anyone who makes such a claim has to be prepared to have a line of strong witnesses. Witnesses matter. The truthfulness of witnesses matter. Kids, have you ever thought about how important this is to God? People are always telling you to tell the truth in general. That's something we say, tell the truth. God is truth. We're called to walk in his truth. We know that the truth matters. But have you ever thought how interesting it is that there is no thou shalt not lie in the Ten Commandments? What you have instead are two different commandments that relate to telling the truth about others. The third and the ninth. The third commandment tells us to speak carefully and truthfully about God, using his name rightly and by extension speaking truthfully about who he is and what he's done. And the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness, commands us to speak carefully and truthfully about others. What we say about others, and whether that's true or false, is a very big deal to God. It's so easy to speak a lie about someone else. It's actually easier even than speaking a lie to someone else. We lie about others to make ourselves look better or to get people on our side or to make it seem like we're in the know, we're important. Or sometimes we lie about others just to have something to talk about. God calls and commands all of us to be truthful witnesses. Jesus has been testifying about himself. He said plainly who he is and by what authority he does these things, and the Jewish leaders will not believe him. So starting in verse 33, he calls his first witness, John the Baptist. You'll remember back in chapter 1 that it was John standing there on the road with two of his disciples, who said of the approaching Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God. Were these men now calling John the Baptist a false witness? The gospel writer writer told us about the Baptist's role even earlier in chapter 1. Back in the prologue, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. You'll notice in this passage, all of those themes about John are present. In verse 33, Jesus says that John has borne witness to the truth. And in verse 35, he was a bright and shining lamp. 
He did this so that they might be saved, so that they would believe in Jesus. And it says that John's witness was reflective. He was a lamp because the light of God shone on him and in him. He was then a lamp for Christ in the world. The kind of light that attracts. Light in a dark place catches our attention. Our eyes are drawn toward it. We move toward it. Crowds of people were drawn to John despite the fact that he was a pretty weird dude with a pretty intense message. Prior to John's coming, Israel had experienced 400 years of prophetic silence. From Malachi to John the Baptist, God said nothing. And so the Jews were excited when another prophet finally appears on the scene. That's why Jesus said in verse 35, you were willing to rejoice in his light for a little while. With his light shining in the darkness, John was able to draw a crowd. In fact, he was able to win the approval of these religious rulers for a time. But when John began to testify to Jesus... That's when they wanted nothing more to do with him. Now that rejection didn't stop John. He was a lamp for the truth of Christ and his light was going to shine before men whether they liked it or not. Some people are driven by approval. You can often recognize these people when you meet them. They tailor their message to the audience, making sure only to say those things that people want to hear. And other people, you'll recognize them too, are often driven by controversy. They tailor their message to what will produce the most conflict and attention. Any press is good press. But John was driven by his message. Regardless of what people wanted from him, regardless of how they responded, he witnessed for Christ. This is a pretty impressive key witness for the defense. But Jesus outdoes even John with the next witness. God, his father, the first person of the Trinity. The father, he says, has always been testifying to Jesus about his identity. That's why in verse 34, he says the testimony he receives is not from men. Jesus needed no other testimony beyond the father's to be secure in who he was. Oh, that we would be likewise. But the father does also testify about Jesus to the world. And here Jesus points out the variety of ways through which he does this. First, verse 36, works. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. The fact that Jesus was able to speak prophetic truth, the fact that Jesus was able to perform these signs and wonders, all these works are validation that his words come from God, that he was sent by God. The word works here includes all of Jesus's ministry, everything he does, the teaching, the seeing into people's hearts, the miraculous, the miracles like the healing that he had just performed, all of this, these are the works the father has given him. What did Nicodemus say when he first approached Jesus? We know that you're a teacher from God. 
because no one can do these things unless God is with him. And he said that because for thousands of years, these types of signs were how the ministries of God's prophets were evaluated in Israel. You knew that a prophet was of God if three things were true. Their word was consistent with what God had said before. The predictive prophecies they made about the future turned out to come true. And if their prophecy was accompanied by some sort of signs and miraculous wonder that could only be of God. These signs signified the truthfulness of the speaker. That's what the religious rulers had been relying on for some 1,500 years now. Jesus made it clear that miracles can't produce faith. But they can, as they always have before, serve as evidence to confirm the rightness of a prophet's ministry. And so for the religious rulers to suddenly reject Jesus' works is for them to discredit a witness that they had relied on for a very long time. Jesus, emphasizing that these signs are from his father, also points out that the rejection of his works is evidence against his accusers. That he and the Father are one, and so to reject Jesus' witness is to reject the Father. If they believed this, going back to verse 30 for a moment, they would be confident in his judgments, even his judgments about them. Because his judgments are the Father's judgments, and what he says must be true. They do not believe Jesus. And so they do not believe John, and they do not believe the Father. All throughout history, including in the Incarnation, the Father is consistently at work revealing the glory of his Son to the world. He's been doing that from Genesis 1-1, revealing the glory of his Son to the world that he's made. Now the next example of this is Jesus' final witness, Scripture. Jesus told his disciples that the scriptures testify to him from the very first books to the last words of the prophets. And the men, these men who put Jesus on trial are some of the most diligent Bible students of their time. They have read their Bibles from cover to cover. They have poured over these books, often memorizing every word. But they never found Christ in these pages. Jesus is the ultimate, the supreme revelation of God. That's what John's been telling us. And he tells us that he's on those pages. Yet these brilliant scholars are standing face to face with Jesus and they can't see the connection. Jesus told them who he was. John the Baptist told them, the Father told them through Jesus' works and his own voice and the revelation in Scripture, yet they will not believe. And so Jesus turns the tables and now takes over the prosecution. It won't be him on trial, but them. Now these men are the accused. Because with all of these witnesses, how could they fail to believe in Christ? It's a serious indictment. 
It begins, his voice you have never heard. At the end of this passage, he draws a connection to Moses in whom they try to hide, who they think is their safety and their hope. But Moses did hear God's voice and he obeyed it. They claim to be faithful students of Moses, but if they believed Moses, they would believe Jesus. Jesus also says, his form you have never seen. What an indictment this is. Scripture says that Jesus is the perfect, supreme revelation of the Father, that he is the exact imprint, the exact representation of his being. From where they are standing right now, at this moment in the story, it is possible to see God standing right in front of them. But they have never seen him. Because they deny that Jesus is who he's testified to be. Then Jesus says, you do not have his word abiding in you. One teacher writes, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's prior revelation. Failure to believe in Jesus is compelling evidence that no matter how much they had studied that revelation, it had not been absorbed, understood, or obeyed. One of the most common things people believe is that the only thing needed for behavior change is more information. Horace Mann has my favorite quote, the founder of public schools in America. He said, give me 100 years of public schools and there will be no more crime. Because the only reason we have crime is that these children lack information. And today, for teenagers to make better choices, all they need is more education on the consequences of bad choices. In counseling, I've often disappointed couples when after only a couple of sessions, I tell them that I've got nothing more to say. And they, their problems aren't fixed, and they look at me in disbelief. They're certain that there's something more I should have to tell them. But in all of these cases, what's needed isn't more information. It's heart change. Yes, there's a certain amount of information we always need. But once you have that, the real work has to be done on the heart. These men standing before Jesus had all the information. They had the entire Old Testament. They had the witness of John the Baptist. They had the voice of God the Father. They had Jesus standing in front of them. What more information could they have needed? But they did not believe. These Jewish leaders studied the scriptures day after day. Because Jesus said they believed that they would find life through studying them. That they would find life in the scriptures themselves. But Christians, the scriptures do not give life. They testify to the one who gives life. They point to Christ. Even Moses pointed to the one who would come. That's why he condemns these men who claim to follow Moses but reject the one to whom he testified. Jesus said, I am 
life. John testified to that. The father testified to that. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. It's not just these men. It's your pastor. It might be you. I know what God has done for me. I know what I ought to do in response. But I'm not doing it. Do you think that what I need is more information? No. Not to break break the logjam of unbelief and disobedience in my heart. What's needed, Jesus says here, is the love of God. That's what they lack. They do not believe in Jesus or Moses for that matter because he says they do not have the love of God in them. What a relief. (laughs) The one thing I need is not something I can make or fashion or fabricate or will up. The one thing I need is something that God alone can pour into my heart. It's only by the working of the love of God in our hearts that we will ever act on the information we've received. It's only that love that can draw us to Christ in faith. And apart from that love, even the most reliable witnesses will be ignored. How many people throughout history have said, I can't believe the Bible, but only if Jesus stood in front of me, then I'd believe that. Only if God did this for me or I saw this miracle, would I believe that. And what God knows is that none of it is true. They don't lack evidence. They don't lack information. They don't believe because they lack the love of God in their hearts. And this, in this case, is by men who want a Messiah. Jesus says, if someone comes in my own name, in, in his own name, you will receive him. It's an undercurrent of this whole exchange. You've probably noticed uh, these contrasting approaches to glory and how that word is woven through this passage. The religious rulers were after a certain kind of Messiah. They wanted one whose interests and goals aligned with theirs. They wanted one that they could happily glorify because he approves of and honors them as well. And Jesus says that he's only interested in doing the will of the Father, that he's only interested in that glory. Like John, Jesus has no concern for the glory of people. And this allows him both to humble himself, even before those who would ridicule him, and to boldly and confidently obey the will of his Father. It is amazing what God can do for us on both sides of the personality spectrum once the fear of man is driven from us and replaced with the fear of God. It is absolutely incredible of the power And the change that can bring to our lives. John called it in his prologue, glory as of the only son from the father. But these men aren't interested in pursuing glory that doesn't to them always look glorious. One teacher rightly observed that the chief judgment on those who deny Jesus as Messiah is not so much that they don't have a Messiah. It's that they follow false ones. These men would follow a teacher. They'll follow a teacher who tells them what they want to hear. 
They'll follow a teacher who offers them their perspective of glory on their own terms. But not this glory as of the only Son from the Father. No, for that, they will not follow. What about you? Is that enough to make you follow? In Peter's second epistle, he applies this morning's lesson in a powerful way. It's amazing how many common themes are between the two texts of 2 Peter 1 and what we've read this morning. Regarding the witnesses to Jesus, he writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, we ourselves heard this very voice from heaven. Did you follow that? At Jesus' baptism, at Jesus' transfiguration, God the Father testified by his own voice to the glory of his Son. And Peter gives his bona fides that he was an eyewitness of that event. He heard it with his own ears. He saw it with his own eyes. And in light of that, what he says next has always blown my mind. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. You catch that? The prophetic word, these scriptures that we have in front of us are more fully confirmed. Peter trusts them more than his own eyes and his own ears. He trusts them more than the voice from heaven and more than his personal interactions with Jesus. He doesn't downplay the significance of any of those things. He elevates the certainty and the usefulness of Scripture. And what does Peter say we should do with this testimony? He writes, To which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp, shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. There's that image again, a lamp shining in a dark place. He says that until we are fully glorified at the day of Christ's coming, we're to pay attention to this word. We're to follow the word. We're to ask God to shine his love in our hearts day after day so that we will believe and follow this word. It is all too easy to think that we need more information from God or that we need a more dramatic way of God revealing himself to us than just through the pages of Scripture. God tells us to pay attention. To pay attention to the word that he's given. This is a lamp in a dark place. And sometimes that dark place is in here. The glory of Christ is rising in our hearts. If we will pay attention and follow his word. And we, living under this word, are a lamp of Christ for the world. We live lives that draw people so that we can point them to Christ. We're to bear witness by our own testimonies that God is true. What testimony are you trying to make for the world? 
If it's a testimony of perfection, you will fail. If it is a testimony of strength and self-reliance, you will lead people to hell. No, our testimony is of repentance and forgiveness and new obedience. They're of a morning star that is rising in our hearts, even while it is not yet fully risen. These scriptures, the confirmed and certain testimony of God, are that lamp for us. And yes, the Spirit testifies to our own spirits that we are children of God and that this is his word. The sacraments, these mysterious signs and seals of our union with Christ, testify and strengthen us in that union. These things are all of God. But God speaks clearest to us through Scripture. We can be certain we belong to God because of the testimony of his word. We can be certain that our hearts are changeable and being changed because of the testimony that God has given us. When we don't feel loved, we go here. Because only in this confirmed word, this certain testimony of God, can we be convinced that Jesus loves me, this I know. When we feel that we are too weak to go on, too weak to break free and move forward, we go here. Only this confirmed word and certain testimony of God can persuade us of his great strength. When our circumstances rage about us and it all seems out of control, we go here. Because only this, God's word and testimony, assure us beyond doubt that he still sits on the sovereign throne. And when we are fearful, or even despairing about our future, we go here. Only here can my heart and mind be fully satisfied that God himself has secured an eternal future for me. And you want to know how I know? How I'm so sure? How I'm certain? The Bible tells me so.